Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Nate Brumley, and he'll be answering your most important questions on Addicted to the Rise, Dry Fly Fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Nate a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next show is. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking to Nate Brumley about Addicted to the Rise. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as an unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly, Kodiak, and Bruin rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to www.bigskyinflatables.com. That's bigskyinflatables.com. Before we introduce Nate, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Nate's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a $25 gift certificate for Dry Fly Innovations, courtesy of Nate Brumley. So here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talked about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, and uh, maybe you'll win that $25 gift certificate to DryFly Innovations. Our guest tonight is Nate Brumley. Nate is the owner of DryFlyInnovations.com and author of two new cutting-edge DryFly books, Addicted to the Rise and Winter on a Dry Fly. The only bugs sold at his company are dry flies, and he's mastered the use of them in all seasons over all bodies of fresh water. Nate has never sunk a nymph or fish to streamer. His offering is 50-plus years experience fishing a dry fly exclusively. Nate's tying sessions introduce dynamic new fly patterns. His presentations are rich in dry fly techniques that include video to connect the concepts. These demonstrations are some of the most sought-after events in the industry and present, and his breadth of knowledge is truly phenomenal. 
It's been said that one hour with Nate is like gaining 10 years of dry fly experience. Should you have the opportunity and attend one of these tying sessions, presentations, or classes, it'll change the way you dry fly fish forever. Nate, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Well, Roger, thank you so much for having me on. And before I forget about it, uh, for all you fly fishing ladies out there, have a very, very happy, happy Valentine. That's right. It is Valentine's Day. Huh? <laughs> I wonder exactly if all the right. fish are. Absolutely. I wonder if all the fish are snuggling up together tonight. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully they got their box of chocolates as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a nice chocolate brown uh, dry fly. <laughs> there, there, there you go. That's exactly yeah. right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well. Um, in your bio, it says that uh, just one hour with Nate is like gaining 10 years of dry fly experience. So we got an hour and a half tonight, Nate. We're going to be really smart by the time we're done with you. So um, I'm looking right, forward no, to you're, it. You're, you're <laughs> gonna, you'll be packing a load by the time it's all said and done. Good, good. Well, let's get at it. Um, so, um, yeah, it's uh, it was interesting. I, I met you at the fly fishing show in Denver, and uh, – and yet, at your booth there, you had nothing but dry flies. <laughs> so, uh, is, caught my is, eye and my attention. Correct. Yeah, and, uh, so here we are. Um, so, you know, you, give me a little history about that yourself. You know, we had a little in the bio, but what originally attracted you to the dry fly and why'd you stick with it without, you know, going, diverging off to nymphs or streamers or something else? Well, you know, Roger, it's a, it's a very interesting thing how a person could ever be in the predicament of a, being a dry fly person for a lifetime. But I started dry fly fishing when I was just a little old guy, about eight years old. I started, and I lived in a very small town, and basically I started out dry fly fishing, and really I just didn't know that there was anything any different. And by the time I graduated from high school, uh, you know, I had used a dry fly enough and figured out enough ways to use that dry fly that I just kept right on using that son of a gun, and I never snipped it off. Well, good for you. Yeah, that's uh, quite the accomplishment. <laughs> I, You know, I think about it, and uh, I think the first, first fish I ever caught uh, fly fishing was on a dry fly, and I remember because I tied it, and it was a mosquito, and I caught a largemouth bass on it, and a little farm like by the house. So I, I hear you, and uh, uh, did a lot of other fishing before that, but um, but that was my first fish on a fly was a dry fly, so and it was exciting, so especially when you tie it. <laughs> so that's well, that's exactly fun. right. That does add a lot to the overall picture. And I was one of those pretty lucky people. I started tying dry flies. I had my first lesson when I was in junior high. And then my high school basketball coach was an accomplished tire, and he kind of added to my skills as we moved along. And, you know, dry fly fishing and fly tying has just always been an integral part of everything that I have ever done in fly fishing. But, you know, when you think about an old dry fly, it's one of those situations where when you see that fish come to the surface and you see him eye to eye out there, there is nothing in my life that is more exciting than seeing that big old fish at a dry fly. And in all honesty, I think the reason why I just continued to fish that dry fly 
I just think the reason was is that if I didn't have that connection to that fish at the surface, then it really wouldn't be fly fishing at all. I I would find no excitement in fly fishing if I just didn't have that connection with that fish. Yeah, yeah, it is exciting. We we all experience that, I know, and uh, there's nothing like it. But, um, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Well, you, you know, we got, of course, you know, I'm going to get this out of the way quickly um, <laughs> because it always comes up on, on our shows. But uh, we've got Ted and Brian and Joe and, and uh, Rick um, all asking, you know, what is your favorite all-time go-to, you know, dry fly that you wouldn't be without? So I'm kind of lumping all their questions. And they had some suggestions like a catskill, a comparadon, a parachute. Uh, a rusty spinner, a beetle, uh, and parachute atoms. So give it up, give it up here, Nate, and tell us what's <laughs> You know, that's a question that I get often asked, and I never really know appropriately exactly how to answer that question because I, in all honesty, I don't really have a favorite fly. My favorite fly is the fly that is addressing that group of fish and having success at that moment. That moment can be pretty short-lived, and then there must be a new dry fly that replaces that fly that continues to catch fish. I guess what I would tell you is my favorite fly is always the one that continues to catch fish. Now, that said, I do have a few favorites in the box that are kind of the old reliables that I'll go to. Uh, you know, oftentimes when I'm just in this rock between hard place and trying to find the right fly. So I guess if I were going to tell you a single fly, and I would have to tell you a single fly of summer, and then I would have to tell you one in the winter, because those are two separate fields of fishing that take separate groups of flies. In the summertime, my favorite dry fly probably is what's called an emperor caddis in olive brown in a size 18. In the wintertime, that's a really, really tough question. I would have to say it's probably one of our little convertible patterns, a unique little tie that we do for blueing olives that is a an adult pattern in the tie. But it can then be, the wings can be then pulled down and turned into a spinner. So if I were picking winner, I would have to say that old convertible is just a great, great bug. Yeah, yeah. So is that emperor caddis a pattern that you use for searching if there's no rises and, and no activity? Is that a I do pattern? use that fly for searching. It's a wonderful searching pattern. And, you know, searching patterns are always, um, you know, there's always a lot of trial and error that goes into any searcher pattern. But the wonderful thing about the emperor caddis, it can be fished directly to the nose of a fish in the hatch, and then you can serve it to holding water and have very similar results with fish coming blindly. Yeah, because that's I, I'd like to get into that a bit more later on, talking about um, those times when there are no rises, and uh, you know what do you do there? So that's that's why I was asking there. Um, Pete Rogers um, in Sonoma, California, he asks, um, no hackle, difficult to tie, 
not the best floater, pretty much a one-fish fly. Why should I pursue this pattern and have it in my box? You know, Pete, that is a really, really good question. And the one thing I would say about that is, is it's probably the no-hackle that it is that you're purchasing. Now, we do offer no-hackles at our company, and our tire on that fly is a guy from Idaho Falls, Idaho, by the name of Joseph Bear. Joseph Bear is a master at no-hackle, and I have fished his no-hackles for many years, and none of the problems that you're looking at that I see in this question, uh, the no-hackles that I fish that Joe ties, they ride high on the surface. They have great floatability. They uh, do uh, a no-hackle in its wing will always separate out just a little bit. But by painting a little bit of floatant on the wings and making sure that you have a right side, left side column that are equal, um, our no-hackles fish brilliantly over many different types of hatches is what I would say. Interesting. Um... Yeah. Um, when does a no-hackle come into play? I mean, when do you use it? Uh, a no-hackle is specifically a hatch bug. It is going to be delivered in a rising fish specifically to the, to the hatch it is addressing. And just for the audience out there that may not know, a no-hackle is a mayfly pattern. So its use would always be in a mayfly hatch. And basically what you would be doing is just matching size, color, silhouette, and then serving that no-hackle exactly to the nose of that fish. And that's a fly that right in the surface, correct? It, it does. And it, it is not a high-riding fly. It's more or less a belly-down fly uh, because of the nature of the high-riding wing what it will do is it advertises a perfect silhouette of the of the body of the fly, and then it it has the great uh, nuance of the wings that are above the surface, and that combination, I do believe that probably the trigger on that fly is actually the wing structure on the fly and the beautiful shaping of that wing. And you mentioned for those that are interested in tying a pattern like that, um, you mentioned um, a couple of things. One was that the two, just to make I have make sure I have this right, uh, the two wing columns need to be identical yes. and balanced, right? And That's correct. Well, a true no-hackle, you have to understand, is done out of duck quill. And duck quill basically is the primary feathers of a duck both on the left and right side, a perfect no-hackle is tied off of the same duck. It is the identical feather on the right side and the identical feather on the left side. And what that creates is the perfect curvature because those feathers are identical side to side on the same duck. And as far as a no-hackle, there is no greater learning curve than tying a no-hackle dry fly. It is one of the most difficult strokes of thread to material of any other dry fly tied on earth. Yeah, and I'm looking at the ones on your website. They look beautiful. They're, Joseph Bear is the master of no-hackle. I have never seen anyone that can tie a no-hackle no like Joseph. 
Yeah, very nice, very nice. Good. Kevin in uh, Tennessee asks, uh, do you consider emergers to be dry flies? And if so, what is your preferred method of keeping them in the surface film? You know, Kevin, that's a great, great question. And let me just give an overall characterization of what I think a dry fly in, in my book actually is. I believe that dry flies are imitated from their emerging and submerged state slightly below the surface of the water, and that would carry all the way through a hatch phase, which is a spent spinner. So, yes, we do a lot of emerging ties within our company, and the way that we always do in an emerger there's a very important aspect of an emerger, and it really is about its posturing at the surface of the water. All emerging bugs need to submerge slightly below the surface, or at certain times, they need to hang straight down just below the surface. In order for a fly to do that, we would apply materials on the thorax in, in sparse uh, material in the thorax or in shucks that go out over the eye of the hook. And what that would do is give a floating device, but it would force the rest of the hook to submerge just below the surface. That is the perfect look on an emerging bug because oftentimes, posturing of that insect is important to a big fish as the actual insect laying on the surface of the water. So absolutely, we are, we are all about emergers at this company, and yes, they are a very important dry fly. Now, do you use any kind of, you had mentioned just a minute ago on the no-hackle, applying um, yes. a floatant onto the wings, uh, do you do something similarly for the... the uh, to keep that head up there? You know, you know, if you fished a dry fly for about 55 years, you would start understanding how important that floatants really become. You know, oftentimes we think that we just put floatant on a dry fly, we just on all over the dry fly, and that's what's going to float our bug. When I look at floatant in a dry fly, I look at where it is that I want to put floatant on the dry fly to make the dry fly posture perfectly for its hatch phase. And in doing so, what you do then is, is you apply floatant for presentation. And they all go hand in hand. To give you an example on that emerger that we were just talking about, whenever you see a dry fly that is imitating a cripple or a little hatcher at the surface, Anytime you see a cripple, do not put floatant on the tail of a cripple. In order for a cripple to be perfectly postured at the surface, you want the tail to sink slightly below the surface and the head and shoulders of the fly to be above the surface. Many times what fools a great big old fish is looking at that fly and recognizing that that bug in its hatch phase is floating perfectly at the surface. The, the one thing I think that really needs to be understood about dry fly fishing, it is always about the teeny tiny little details that make the greatest amount of difference over big smart fish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, there was a question a little later, uh, Rick, in the 
Medusa, New York, asked about the best floatants. So maybe now's a good time to talk about the different kinds of floatant you use and, and when you use them. Yes. Um, to open up the, the question, and it is a very good question, by the way, Rick, to open up the question, I would say this. There are no dry flies that you use that do not need an application of floatant. The only bug in there that might that you might exclude from that would be like a foam beetle or a foam and an entire foam fly. That fly does not need floatant because it's going to float no matter what. But in the other dry flies that you would use, there are various different materials within the dry flies that, like, say that we produce. Anything that is hair and hackle. We like to recommend a paste for that material, and we use a lot of payette paste by Loon. Um, it is perfect for hair and hackle. Now, there's another component that we use in many of our dry flies, and it's what's called canard or CDC. It would be the oil infatuated feathers that sit on a duck on the duck's rear end on the preen gland. That material is some of the greatest floating material on Earth, but it needs floatant too. There's a solution, there's a solution by, by Loon again that's called Loxaw. Loxaw is the greatest floatant for CDC. It takes a simple blowout of the CDC and a small amount of Loxaw, and that will float your CDC through through any kind of casting it is that you may do, but you will have to reapply after every fish you catch. Okay, and, and the first one you said was loon, and it kind of broke up there, so it was a, a loon paste. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it would be, it's, it's a loon product called payette paste, and that would be used for hair and hackle, and the Loxaw would be a formula that, that, that we would use for CDC, or Caldecanard. And those are the only two you use? That's the only two formulas that I use. Wow, okay, okay. And that will cover every dry fly it is that you own. So floatants are not, um, you know, a rocket science. If you have a solution that it goes along with your CDC flies, and covers your hair and hackle, that is the only floating material it is that you need. Now, I'll make one exception to that. I do an enormous amount of deep winter fishing. In fact, I was on the river just a couple of days ago. So I never a dry fly. But in the winter, the only floatant that I take with me is just the lock saw because most of the flies are tiny and many of the flies have a component of CDC. When you're um, when it's not an emerging pattern, but a, a high floating dry fly, do you apply yes. the the paste to the whole fly, body, tail, yes, you face, do. tackle? Absolutely, absolutely, Roger. Any time that your objective is to float your fly high and dry on a big high ride, and you would always want to think about that fly as being a fly that would be fished to fast riffle rather than down on a slick somewhere, that any time you want a high ride on the fly, your application of floating then would be over the entire bug, including the tail. 
Okay. Okay, good. Good. All right. There's some really good tips right there. So everybody was listening carefully. Um, <laughs> Nate, we're going to take a, uh, a very uh, quick break. And when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll dig into this dry fly fishing a lot more. So stick with Sounds great to me, Roger. Okay. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with the Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling, while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jackraval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. That's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Nate Brumley about Addicted to the Rise, Dry Fly Fishing. If you'd like to ask Nate a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Nate, I always ask my guest at this point in the show, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So we've mentioned your business a couple of times. Tell us about uh, Dry Fly Innovations, and uh, also I, I believe you're going to some shows coming up here. You might want to talk about those as well. Absolutely, Roger. We're, we're pretty busy this time of year. In fact, we've been three times to the, to the East Coast in the last uh, month. So we're road warriors are really what we are. But to give you an idea about what Dry Fly Innovations is all about, basically we are a dry fly company. We don't sell anything at the company other than dry flies. And our one objective in any way that we could, we are just here to help you become better on a dry fly. And if you're really good good at it already, we even think we have some ideas that might even push that game a little bit higher. Our game is 24-7 dry fly. And we basically are just the America's voice of dry fly is who we are. What is your URL again, your, your domain name? Uh, dryflyinnovations.com. There you go. Okay. Yeah, and you're selling uh, fly boxes, flies, river pa- destination river packs for specific rivers. Uh, and you were tell- tell people about your blog and how that relates to your books as well. You know, um, I would start with the books, and then we would talk about the blogs. Um, in the last two years, we have authored two uh, pretty cutting-edge dry fly books. One is Addicted to the Rise, and the other is Winter on a Dry Fly. Um, our books are rather unique in that they have a 90-minute DVD in the back of each of those books, that covers the concepts in video that we address within the book. Along with each of those books, there is a free one-year subscription to the blogs, and the blogs are another just great learning tool. We started Dry Fly Innovations 10 years ago, 
And the day that we started, we began doing blogs on every fishing trip that my son and I have taken. In that time period, these blogs were written in great detail. So what we did is we just put you in the moment with us right there on the river, and we solved problems together through these blogs. To this point, we have over 1,100 blogs in there over a fish uh, places fished across the Northwest. So in the purchase of one of our books, basically what that does is it just involves you with this great field of knowledge, and you have free access to just move in and out of our educational platform. Great, great. And uh, you're selling your books on uh, your website as well? We do sell the books on our website. We also have an account with Amazon as well. We have not published the books officially. They're self-published books. And there probably will be a time that we would address that. But at this point in time, um, you know, we're, we're having some pretty good success sharing a lot of books. And, and I think we'd stick with this for a little bit, of course. Sure. Yeah. Hey, gets the job done. So that's what counts. Yeah. And, um, yeah, self-publishing is, uh, is the thing nowadays. Um, you get faster, faster to the market as well. So, which is nice. You know, right. I believe so, and and I, you know, there is a there's a certain uh, profitability issue that always goes along with publishing as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely good. Well, thanks for sharing that, and um, uh, so everybody, check it out, dryflyinnovations.com. Uh, see what Nate's got out there, and uh, and uh, send some business his way. So sounds good. All right, a um, few more questions here about flies. Um, Rick Takahashi, uh, he's in in, uh, in Colorado here. Rick's been on our show. He's he's like the midge master, uh, and written a couple books. He asks, uh, what style of dry fly patterns do you favor tying, and what flying tying materials do you like do you like to use for your bodies and wing material? You know, I, I'll start with the wing material and body materials. You know. When you dry fly fish exclusively, you are almost always hunting for what we refer to as triggers. What is it that makes a big fish eat your fly up close and personal when he's a big old smart guy? And many times what we do is for our abdomen work, we love biots, goose biots, turkey biots, those make some of the most beautiful striated bodies, and we find that segmented and striated bodies are some of the real critical triggers that will make a big fish eat. For wing material, we use a multitude of different materials. We use bear hair for our little convertible, uh, convertible tie. We use a lot of CDC in both muted wings and full wings for, say, for caddis. Um, we use a lot of different materials on wings, but the whole idea is always to make that fly look the most realistic that we possibly can in front of that big, smart audience. Now, you've, um, the, the things you've mentioned here are all natural products. Um, so do you like to, to stay with natural products, or are you also using synthetics as well? 
you know, in today's world, there is not much way that you stay away from synthetics because some of those are just some of the great products out there. Um, you know, I think of the underwing material that we use, like Sparkle Organza, under our emperor caddis, um, under our emperor caddises. I think about, you know, the use of Zelon in shucks, in small shucks, and the various different methods of wings and spent spinners that we use, you know, out of synthetic materials. And, you know, there really is not a lot of materials that would fit a dry fly that we're not uh, adverse to actually using. Um, and then, you know, getting back to, you know, my favorite flies to tie, I guess, you know, my answer to Rick would be there is, is you know, I, I think we all do have favorite flies that we tie, but I don't really have any specific you know, flies that are, are my favorite to tie. My belief is, is that you, you tie flies and you manufacture flies to hook fish. That is the one criteria that makes it a favorite or not favorite fly for me is what I would say. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking kind of across the board here and I'm seeing hair, I'm seeing quills, uh, synthetics, uh, all kinds of things. So whatever gets the job Absolutely. done, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And yeah. there's, it's no holds barred when you have to deal with a big fish out in the real world on dry fly. Yeah, yeah. Are there any um, tying tips that may be specific to dry flies that, that you can throw out here to the folks? You know, I just believe that in the first person that ever taught me how to tie a dry fly I remember to this day some of the comments that he made, and the one comment that always stuck out in my mind is a comment that he would make if I got in too big of a hurry to get my work done. He would always say that, you know, it's your job to make a perfect dry fly, and the way that that always gets done is that you take the time and the effort to make all body parts perfect, and you know, that's just the way I started tying dry flies, and I'm a believer in that philosophy right there. There's no such thing as a sloppy dry fly. They just do not exist in a fish's world. So when it comes to tying, just think about precision. Think about uh, the one critical issue to always tying great dry flies is knowing exactly where the margins are on your abdomens, your thoraxes, and your heads. And I would think tying sparsely is, is a critical part of that whole, you know, tying process as well. Uh, I remember when I first I, started tying, mine, mine were like these bulky things <laughs> with huge shoulders, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it, looked, it looked kind of like the Hulk. You know, and uh, consequently, they didn't float real well. <laughs> but, uh, well, uh, and you, and you know, Roger, time. they do. And I would tell you this, that same mistake is being made on many of the commercial flies out there even today. And if you looked at our fly selection, you would notice right off that they just are, they just have a different look. And most of it is due to the very sparseness by which it is that we design and tie our articulated flies over big, smart fish. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Well, let's talk about um, let's talk about uh, 
equipment here a little bit. Um, what about rods? What weight rods do you use most often? Are you a four-weight, three-weight guy, or do you like a bigger rod? No. In, in fact, in the water that I fish out of Idaho and then across the Northwest, we, you know, we just have a, we're blessed here in that we just have a lot of really big fish in the rivers across the Northwest. I fish two types of rods um, pretty consistently. I fish a four-weight rod and a five-weight rod. I keep those two rods rigged almost all the time. As a spur rig, I will have the five-weight rigged for a large bug, and I'll have the four-weight rigged for small bug. So those would always be the two rods it would be that I would be fishing. Um, I don't see a lot of need for a three-weight in the type of most of the water it is that I fish, um, just because I think it's really kind of our responsibility. If you're going to fish for big fish in fast water, use a rod that has enough backbone in it to get the fish delivered to the net as quickly as you can. Okay, good. Um... I'm going to talk about lines here in a minute, but I'm going to backtrack here a little bit because we had a couple questions come in on the Internet, and uh, and it looks like I missed one question from Peter Brown. So I'm going to throw this one out here before we dig deep okay. into the lines. Uh, Peter Brown in California asks, uh, what are the qualities of a searcher pattern as distinguished to a hatcher, match the hatch pattern? Uh, is it just a durable, well-designed, large attractor? Uh, you produce a fly called the tantalizer. What situations and conditions is it designed for? You know, Peter, that is an awesome question. And there's kind of an easy answer for your question. You speak in your question pertaining to searcher fishing and hatchers. In all of the dry flies that any of us will ever fish in our lifetime, they will be one of those two flies a searcher is a design that is always fished out of a hatch with no rising fish. What we would refer to as a hatcher is a precisely tied bug that addresses exactly what is happening at the surface of the water. It is going to match color, size, silhouette exactly to that bug on the surface of the water. Now, a searching fly, in many times, it does not have that characteristic. What it has is built-in triggers that would encourage a fish to come out of holding water and come up and eat that searcher. There are two worlds that live within the world of dry fly fishing. One is fishing in the hatch over rising fish. There is a whole nother world out there that most people have very little knowledge of, and that is what's referred to as searcher fishing. And I would just tell you outright, right now, that probably over, well over 50% of the fish that I catch are not fish that rose before the cast. They are fish that came to the surface in holding water and ate, and there was no hatch there, and there was no rise there on the cast. Basically, searcher fishing is having the right dry fly served to the right holding water where fish live, then the hatching aspect is little more than matching the hatch and addressing those rising fish at the surface. But it is two different worlds of dry fly fishing. Now, also in the question, the fly is mentioned, the tantalizer. Um, the tantalizer is a 
very potent fly pattern, and we catch tons of fish on that particular pattern. But it is designed to imitate either a caddis or a mayfly in its hatching position. There is a little wing nodule on that fly, which indicates that that fly is in its hatching phase, and the wing has not yet developed into a mature wing. Any time that you would use a tantalizer, you are not going to put floatant on the tail because that is another bug that must posture at about a 45-degree angle with the tail submerged below the surface. Very good. Very good. So um, a couple others here came in on the Internet. Uh, James says, Nate, I've been watching your shows on YouTube. What techniques do you use to improve strike detection? when using size 20 and smaller flies? You know, that, that's a great question. And I would be absolutely lying if I told you that I see those small dry flies all the time. But the one thing that I do know, I, I do have enough control on my cast to where I know pretty much where that fly lit on the surface of the water. Any fish that rises in proximity will dictate a uh, the setting of the hook because that fish is probably at your fly. Yeah, yeah, just the vicinity. Uh, That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, and, and this is just a question for me. You do have a few patterns in your book, and are other? Do you have videos on tying some of these flies uh, that are your pattern? You know, that's a very good question. We have no videos in the books, in either of the books, that are tying videos. The videos are basically what we do in the video is we put you right over on the river over big fish, and we show you the concept that we're trying to teach you in the book. And I have just, I had just learned over the years, and being a, an ex-school teacher, that if you can just put video behind these concepts, it just has a way of sticking to you. And when you're in that critical moment on the river, it's just really easy to just go right back in your mind and visualize exactly what you saw in that video and then just repeat what you saw. Um, there's just no substitute for video. But we don't do any video to fly tying. But we do our final chapter in both of the books we give you the top 12 dry flies that we fish in Addicted to the Rise, and then we give you the top 10 dry flies that we fish in winter in our Winter on a Dry Fly book. Um, but what we do is we give the, the standard instruction on exactly how to tie that fly with a photo. Plus a bunch of uh, work from your blog about fishing that fly. Um, Absolutely. Not just the, Absolutely. Not just the recipe. Yeah. Very good. Well, and an interesting thing, too, Roger, that should be noted, that, you know, our company, and, and really, you know, I have basically designed the dry flies at our company over a lifetime. They are the only dry flies it is that I use. The same thing that we ship out to our customer, our customers and that they order are the identical same dry flies it is that I use. Now, I would say that there's always, you know, we've always got 8 or 10 or 12 prototypes that we're testing, but the basic flies that I fish are the identical flies that we offer to our customers. 
Right, right. And also, um, I just noticed, because I haven't got through your whole book here yet, but uh, the boxes in the back. Uh, and you have boxes set out for, instance, uh, it looks like a caddis box, a yes. blue wing olive box, right, mayfly box, um, yes. a terrestrial box. Um, That's correct. Uh, yeah, so... Now, are these boxes, these are your recommendations on how to create your own box, or are these boxes that you're selling at TriFly Innovations, or both? Actually, what we're doing within the book is we are showing those boxes as examples of how to set up a, a dry fly fishing system with your flies. And what that all bases from is the idea that in many cases, when you fish a dry fly, you know going out the door the flies it is that you're going to need to match. We know in the summertime that no matter where you go, that you're going to run into a caddis and you're going to run into a mayfly. So if you're designing boxes or building your own boxes, we would always recommend that you build a caddis box with the best caddis that you can find on earth and then do the same thing with a mayfly. The, the next box that you would need to connect into that, every hatch phase has four different members within the hatch phase. There is an emerger, there is an adult, there is a spent spinner, and in that process there is also a hatcher. We know that there's four stages for every hatch out there. So the next box it is that you would need you would want to put all adult bugs in your caddis box and your mayfly box. The next box would be an emerger box that has all of the hatch phases of those adult bugs that you have in your caddis box and your mayfly box. And then if you thought about that, in those three boxes alone, you are covering the hatch phases of the major insects that you're going to deal with on a river, then the only other box it is that you need is the greatest collection of searcher flies that you can find. And those would be the backbone of a fishing system that you could build within your boxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're the first person I've seen that, that's broken it down like that. I think that's excellent. Yeah. It just makes it much easier for you to get immediately to the hatch phase that you need to to get to the right bug in front of that big old fish that you're looking at out in front of you. Right, right. Very good. Uh, a couple more questions came in on the Internet. Um, James says, a year ago I saw a Doug Swisher video where he was using a no-hackle as a searching pattern. Do you ever do the same? Uh P.S. See Mike Lawson Spring Creek flies for a great tutorial on tying no hackles. So there's another tip yes. for tying for everybody out there. Uh, what about the Swisher you bet. comment? Um, well, you know, I often think about winter fishing because in the winter you're going to need to search your fish at times. In fact, there's big windows of time in the winter when there are no rising fish. So what you do is, is you use the midges or blue-wing olives, and you will use those as searcher patterns. And there's always one secret when you use searcher patterns. Always use the adult bug. 
And a no-hackle is the adult form of a blooming olive. And I use that fly often as a searcher fly in winter. Um, it's an awesome searcher fly is what it is. Yeah, cool, cool. Uh, and one other, uh, Geraldo in Boise, up in your neck of the woods, uh, he says, wants to know what floating to use on hoppers. I would guess uh, if they're hair, then we're back to the paste, right? If they're foam, that is correct. Yeah, okay. That's exactly right. And if it's a foam fly, you won't need to worry about floating at all because that guy's just going to float for you either way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, we'll take a, a quick break here, Nate, and then we'll come back and we'll talk uh, more about uh, uh, lines and presentation and so forth. So. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't take long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for a tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize. Uh, book your next adventure now. Visit WhiprayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray and then C-A-Y-E FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Nate Bremley about Addicted to the Rise, Dry Fly Fishing. If you'd like to ask Nate a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com. And use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Uh, we receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Um, okay, um, Nate, um, Tim in uh, Oregon asks, uh, says, at first I figured that you'd save a bunch of money on fly lines. Uh, then I thought about how many specialty floating lines there are out there, matching many presentations. How many lines do you carry in each weight? Well, that's a pretty simple question, Tim. I, I carry one line. That's what I carry. Um, my four-weight and my, my five-weight rods, I do my drop fly line that I use on both of those rods is Scientific Angler, um, and it's called Shark Wave is the name of the line, and it's basically got beautiful, perfect color. It is perfect presentation line, and that's the only line that, uh, that I use. That's, I think, what he wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah, we only it, need to go get and, one line. Uh, yeah. That's exactly right. And, and yeah. you know, there's no sense of complicating the issue of dry fly any more than it probably already is. But that is probably the best dry fly line that's available out there right now. And the one comment I want to make about anyone that is purchasing dry fly line, stay away from all of those fluorescent lines that you're seeing out there. Don't fish those oranges and don't fish those bright greens and don't fish those fluorescent lines over big, smart fish. That is just an insult to their intelligence. <laughs> I didn't know they could become insulted. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the other comment I would make to that is, is oftentimes, you know, we think about that old fish out there as just, you know, cold-blooded creature uh, with a small brain that doesn't think. Um, I look at those fish out there as rocket scientists, and that's the way that we should address a fish, is basically what we should all do as dry fly people. 
Well, there's been many a day that I, I think they are rocket scientists. <laughs> they, they sure as hell have me figured out, that's for sure. Well, uh, well we've got um, Rick Takahashi again asking about uh, what type of tippet materials to use for dry flies, and can you discuss how you set up, you know, and rig your, your terminal tackle for dry flies? Absolutely. You I know, think that's I probably have really probably critical too, right? You know, it is, and, 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 you know, a lot of times I think that people just look at an old tapered leader out there as just a piece of leader that you attach a fly to. You know, when I look at a tapered leader and, and tip it, what I see is stealth. What I see is perfect presentations. What I see is the creation of invisible zones around your dry fly, and I also look at them to be versatile to be able to move in and out of different sizes of flies and do that quickly and efficiently and then be back on the fish. So I can't say enough about the importance of your tapered leaders and your tippets. I have probably tried almost, you know, almost every brand out there. The only tapered leaders and tippets that I fish are the Umqua series of tapered leaders and tippets. They are nylon. And they are perfect color, water green. They are supple enough to make perfect presentation. And they do create those invisible zones around the fly. Now, if I'm rigging a fly, a stealth rig, like for winter fishing right now, um, and Roger, this is going to take just a little second to rig a rod, but, you know, that's the question, so here's the answer. The first thing it is that I do with dry fly line is I go right in and cut that loop right off the line immediately. Because when you loop that together with tape, with a, with a tapered leader loop, that creates a big bulky knot. That also creates wake on the surface of the water that a fish can both feel and see. So my suggestion right now, get rid of great big bulky knots right now on your tapered leaders and your dry fly line. What I like to do is fish seven and a half foot tapered leaders. Clip the, the loop off the tapered leader. Clip the loop off your dry fly line. Do a six turn nail knot to attach that seven and a half foot tapered leader to your dry fly line. Now, go to the end of your seven and a half foot tapered leader and pull off a two full arm length of tippet which would be in the range of about six to seven feet of tippet, and splice that tippet to your seven-and-a-half-foot tapered leader with a three-turn surgeon's knot. Now, if you think about what that creates, a seven-and-a-half-foot tapered leader has a very short taper. It's only about two-and-a-half feet long, but that will drive now 12 to 13 feet of fine line behind it in a straight line. Now think about what that creates right there. When you tie your dry fly within that zone, you have a 12-foot zone around your dry fly that is almost impossible for a fish to actually see. So what you've done with that seven-and-a-half-foot tapered leader is create an invisible zone first and foremost. The next thing that you do with seven-and-a-half-foot tapered leaders is you set up versatility. Like if I'm rigged for the winner, I'm going to tie a 5X tapered leader on, 
And when I start in the morning with no fish rising, I'm going to splice 5X tippet to that tapered leader. Now, as the day goes on and I run into a small bluing olive hatch or I've got fish up rising, I want to drop my tippet size now from a searching bug into a hatching bug. So I can come right in, splice 6X tippet to my 5X tapered leader, tie off my small bug, and serve it directly to the nose of a fish in the hatch. So you also want to have a lot of versatility within the tippets and tapered leaders it is that you use. Now, to finish your rig, we all know that a tapered leader does not last forever. I'll generally get, if I hook a lot of fish, I'll generally get three, maybe four trips out of a tapered leader. At that point in time, I'm going to have to change that tapered leader. Now, we've already started uh, with a nail knot. We've attached that 7.5-foot tapered leader to the dry fly line. Now what I'm going to do on my worn-out tapered leader, I'm going to clip it at 20 inches from the dry fly line. So what I have now is a nail knot, 20 inches of heavy line, and now what I'm going to do it with a two-turn surgeon's knot, I'm going to place my next seven-and-a-half-foot tapered leader. So have I got the audience totally lost out there at this time? No, no, I think you're totally clear. I'm following you uh, yeah, word for word. Beautiful. You're doing great. beautiful, beautiful. So that's my ideas about leaders, and, I, and the final comment on tapered leaders, always keep in mind that a nylon leader needs at least 20 minutes stretch time before it is a, a long, straight, perfect leader. So when you reach the river, instead of, you know, gearing up and putting on your waders and doing all those things, rig your rod first. And that way your rod will sit for that 20 minutes and get great stretch time on your tapered leaders while you're putting on your waders and getting your gear ready. When you say stretching, you mean just just uh, on the rod itself by? That's exactly right. Yeah, just okay. put the fly in the keeper, the yeah. little holder just above the handle, and then cinch down the line to put a lot of good pressure on it, tighten the drag, and then stretch that line for a good 20 minutes before you fish. Okay, good tip, good tip. All right, um, I think that covers it for Rick, uh, and I hope you're listening, Rick, because uh, <laughs> that's exactly wow. what you wanted. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Ed in uh, Wisconsin asked about um, – he says, do you see any advantage in, in reducing drag when fishing a furled leader as opposed to a nylon leader? So I, I assume you're not fishing furled leaders. Is that correct? You know, I don't fish furled leaders, and a good buddy of mine, he owns a furled leader company. So, you know, I, I like to let people go ahead and make their own choices about furled leaders, but what I have always found is that I just don't feel that I have the control that I need to really put a fly on a dime where it needs yeah. to be when you're dealing with rising fish. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and I think you've kind of answered this, but you might have another comment on it. Thomas in Washington says, if you only fish the top, does this mean you only fish when there's a hatch? And you've already, I think, explained that. Anything you want to add to that? You know, um, you know I think it's a great question that should be reiterated that Thomas makes. And, and I think that Thomas's question really gets down to 
uh, a true belief in the fly fishing world out there that there really is no fishing of a dry fly when there are no rising fish. And, you know, I can't find that comment to be any further from what my life experience has been. I have caught fish in the hatch. I have caught fish out of the hatch. And I'm at a point in my dry fly life that I just don't really care. If there's fish rising, great. I'm all about it. But if there are not fish rising, I know two things. I know that I own great searching bugs, and I know precisely where fish live. If you have those two combinations right on a dry fly, you would never need to clip it off again, and you just go right on fishing that son of a gun for the rest of your lifetime. And I guess that you could say that I'm a living example of someone who has done that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Are there better lies or water for fishing dry flies as opposed to to nymphs? Do you you stay away from certain types? You know, for instance, do you stay away from slack water or riffles, or uh, do you fish at all uh, with dry flies as well? You know, it's a great question, and what you have to ask yourself is this. Um, The same fish that live in lies of water that eat a nymph are the same fish that could potentially come blindly and eat your dry fly. But there's a lot to know about reading holding water and knowing precisely where it is that fish actually live. Um, There are some rules when dry fly fishing. If you're searcher fishing, there are no rising fish. Do not go to deep pools and anticipate a fish to come from seven feet underwater and come up and eat your dry fly. If there are bugs that are hatching on the water in that deep pool, those fish will be there. But if they are not, then don't try to search your fish into deep pools. Search your fish fishing should be executed in shallower water where there is a shorter distance to the fish to the fly. What that creates is that response bite from that fish, where he's only a foot and a half or two feet away from that fly, he sees a perfect fly in his zone of water, and he he, he eats by reaction because he's in proximity to the fly. Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we look for the same holding lies and so forth, but with an easy reach of a, of a surface take. So um, That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Um, yeah, because the fish aren't moving. Well, the only time, like you said, the fish are moving around is if there's a hatch on and they all get into the party mode and uh, move to where the hatch is. And that's usually just under the that's, that's exactly right. And then it really doesn't make any difference whether it's in deep water or shallow water. Right. What the fish are going to do is they're going to man the surface of the water and eat those bugs at the surface of the water. So, um, but, you know, the follow-up question is a really good one, is, is, you know, what do you do? What do you do when there's no fish rising? What kind of water is it that you look for then to serve a dry fly? Right. And I like to think in terms of two locations on a river that is always money. And they are this, a riprap edge where you have a lot of structure in the water, a lot of boulders on the bank and a lot of boulders in the water 
that is setting up these beautiful staging areas where those fish can lay in calm water and then strike out into that currented water where the food is passing by. I love structure water when there are no rising fish. That is one of the great locations that you should always serve a dry fly when there are no rising fish. Now, the other place that will just hook fish perpetually, go to the inside edge of riffle water, where that transition line is from fast water right on that edge from fast to slow water. What that type of water does is consolidate fish exactly on the seam. And as long as you keep your dry fly within that seam, you are casting your fly to the greatest number of fish that might be out there right on that seam. Any place that consolidates the numbers of fish into smaller zones of water is a benefit to you with a dry fly. Yep, yep, makes sense, makes sense. Okay, let's talk about approaches, because you designated a chapter in your book up to approaches. Um, tell the folks what an approach is and uh, some of the techniques to improve your approaches and things we should never do. Yeah, well, um, I would just lead out with the idea that approaches is the one single most important thing that you ever accomplish as a dry fly fisherman. And to define what an approach really is, an approach is a premeditated thought process that gets you in casting range of a big fish without him recognizing your presence. The whole game of dry fly is always played within those parameters. You are fighting the ability of a fish to feel you and see you in everything it is that you do in dry fly fishing. So what that does is creates the absolute necessity for pure approaches. And so you fight the battle. That's what you do. We don't even understand fully just how perceptive that a great big old fish really is out there in a zone of water. We know that he has exceptional vision, and that vision is in a full 330 degrees. There is only one blind spot on a fish, and it's right behind his tail in a 30-degree window. Anything else within that circumference, that darn fish can see you, and he's constantly looking for you as well. The other thing that a fish does is he feels you, and our wading habits lead right into to a fish's ability to just feel you wherever it is that you are on a body of water, is what I would say. And there's just, uh, when it comes to approaches, many times, and I believe this to be true, many times we don't even get to deliver a fly to the big fish that we're addressing out there because of our approach habits. We get too close to fish. We wade too quickly. We make too much wake. We enter the water when we don't have to. We do a lot of things within our approaches that offend fish. And the one thing that you do not do in the world of dry fly is you do not offend fish. Now, there is a whole list of things that offend fish. And I'm just going to mention a few of them just off the top of my head. Number one, you never cast a shadow over any zones of water in which it is that you're going to fish. 
the second that your shadow comes over the over the surface of the water, basically what you're doing is framing yourself against the sun. And a big old fish out there knows exactly what you look like, and he's petrified of the way that you look. You don't slap the water with your dry fly line. You don't rip line off the surface of the water when you recast. You roll cast into your next cast, then pick up and deliver the fly. You don't use fluorescent lines in your dry fly line. Um, you don't put dry fly line over the top of a fish's head. You don't walk the fisherman's trail along the edge of the river. That is just a place where fish have grown to recognize the entrance of all fishermen always show up on the fisherman's trail. You never wear white or bright clothing. In fact, the clothing, most of the clothing being offered at your local fly shop right now is offending more fish than you even know. All of those peaches and those blues and those cans, those are perfect colors for a fish to see you at long distances. Match yourself against the backdrop of a river. Olives are one of the great colors that you should wear most of the time. Um, the other thing is just, you know, don't wade into zones of water until you cast a fly in that zone of water first. The other thing is, is don't enter a river from high to low. If you are elevated above a fish, there is no distances above the surface of the water that he can't see you. So when you enter the water from above, make sure that you're in the cover of trees or brush or large rocks. Everything it is that you do is to conceal yourself away from that great big old fish. Well, Nate, we're all going to have to take sedatives before we go out fishing because uh, just because of <laughs> excitement. Because most of the things you talk about, we all break those rules because we're too damn excited. <laughs> we're, we're, we're too damn you know, excited Roger. to get out there and catch no fish, right? Because <laughs> we've just well, broken all the rules. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, a lot of the reason that we don't catch fish is that we offend them before we have a chance. Yeah. Um, so we just thought in those it. terms. And the other thing is, it's just obviously – all of us that, that are out there on the river together, just look at the speed by which most people fish, which is, is significantly too fast for the fish that are, that are existing out there in the water in front of them. If there was one thing that I could offer as a suggestion, just slow down. Make yourself much more indiscreet, and you'll hook a lot more big fish because you did. There you go. There you go. Let's talk about rise forms for a minute, because this is always a question that comes up. You know, what are the different rise forms? How do we know what they're feeding on? Uh, and which, you know, which flies should be, we, we be reaching for for those rise forms? So can you talk about that for a few minutes? I would be more than happy to, to talk about that. In fact, you know, rise forms, if you just looked at the rise of the fish and you just thought about it as a communication, just that old fish out there just talking directly to you and basically telling you what it is that he is doing. Um, a rise form, there are a multitude of rise forms. And, you know, if all that you ever did was dry fly fish, you become much more cognizant of how many just different rise forms that there are. I would just go through a few of them. You know, there is a rise form out there that I refer to as crushing 
That is when a big old fish actually comes completely out of the water and pounces down on its prey. Oftentimes, that's a big bug that he's trying to pounce down on, and he's not necessarily looking to eat that bug in one clean swoop. What he's wanting to do is cripple the bug, and then what he'll do is make another run at him and actually eat him. There'll be other times that you'll actually see a fish porpoise. You don't really see his head. All you see is kind of the hump in his back. You see his dorsal fin, and then you see his tail. And you notice that the fish is always going in a downward motion. What that rise form is right there is a fish that is basically targeting emergers just under the surface. But what he sees is, if he sees an ascending nymph coming to the surface, and then what he does is he changes the angle of his feeding posture, and he goes downward into that ascending nymph and eats it below the surface. That fish is always telling you that his key really is an emerging bug, and that emerging bug is dangling just below the surface. That's how he gets set up on that porpoise bite. Now, there are other rise forms as well. You'll see fish jump completely out of the water. Um, and at times, I've been on hatch flats before on, in a caddis hatch where it was just, where you see 20 or 30 or 40 of those fish just absolutely, you know, just jumping completely out of the water. We get a misread on that rise form right there. That fish is really not trying to catch something out of the air. What he's doing, he's chasing a fast-moving caddis to the surface of the water, and then he just so happens to catch it six inches underneath the surface. Basically what's happening, his momentum is still moving forward, and he'll shoot completely through the surface of the water. Uh, and all that is is just a remnant of an eat that happened underneath the surface. You'll also notice on that fish, you'll never see that fish open his mouth above the surface. He doesn't do that because he's already eaten the bug just below the surface. There are a multitude of rise forms, but there are two rise forms out there that you as a dry fly person, you must be able to recognize, and you must be able to go to your box and select a fly that matches it. The two rise forms, and we go into this in great detail in our books because it's so important to the principle of dry fly. The two rise forms you must identify is what's called an emerger bite, and the other one is what's called an adult bite. If you can recognize those two bites, they tie directly to fly patterns that are exactly what that fish is eating. An emerger bite will always be recognized by its subtleness. There will be a small ring with a bubble in the middle of it, and that is a fish that is sucking emergers off the surface. Any emerger bite must be met with a fly that is going to submerge slightly below the surface or suspend upside down. When you see an emerger bite, that tells you that that fish is not eating anything on the surface. He's doing little more than just sucking a bug off of the surface. When a fish puts his nose above the surface and you clearly see the nose of the fish, he is eating some form of an adult or hatching bug at the surface. If you can recognize those two rise forms, that will put you precisely on what the fly pattern is that will hook that fish. 
It's fairly easy to recognize what the hatch is at the surface because you can see that. You can see the bug actually hatching on the surface. But what you cannot determine until there's a rise form is which stage in that hatch that fish is actually keying. And always keep in mind, a fish can key on any of those four stages of the hatch. So that brings up Rick uh, Bobrick's question from New York. Do you ever fish two or more flies together? <laughs> you know, that's a very good question. Many, many, many of our customers, they fish a two-fly rig. And, you know, I'm always just a believer that if you got something working for you, you just go for it. And all we would ever do is just support you because you did. Um, <laughs> I think of it a little bit differently. I only sink a single – I don't, well, I don't sink anything, but I only fish a single fly. I don't fish any two two fly rigs, and I don't do anything with a dropper. I've always believed that the one perfect fly fished presented perfectly will catch more fish than any fly combination that you could put together. Because the one problem that you always have with a hopper and a dropper, that darn dropper is a lazy dude. And he always wants to come back up around your line and connect in in above the hopper portion of your setup. And I don't like tangles. I like to keep my fly on the surface of the water. And one single fly that the fish are turned on to will produce more, more fish than any one thing I've always believed. Okay, great. We're running out of time here, Nate. I told you we would. <laughs> You're kidding me. Gosh, I thought we just got started, Rod. Yeah, well... <laughs> People will have to uh, buy your book and uh, get the rest of the story. Who was that guy that used to say that? Radio, the rest of the story? <laughs> I don't remember, Raj. Yeah. The rest? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can't remember his name. Um, so a um, couple of things maybe you can just hit quickly, uh, you know, around strategies and tactics. Um, you talk about presentations and in your book quite a few are there, yes. you know, are there like what are the three most important presentations that you find yourself using time and time again? Well, well, I think there's an ingredient that goes along with all presentations, and I think there's like three ingredients that you should always follow. All presentations should deliver a drag-free fly that floats at the same speed as the current. Number one. Oftentimes, I think what we think about in presentations, we think about landing a dry fly in the general area of where that fish rose. I think accuracy is one of the great advantages within a presentation. A great presentation or delivery is a fly that lands exactly on the nose of that fish. You want to make it so easy that all he has to do is just open his big white mouth and eat. And then the other thing about presentations, you know, you can cast to a fish from any angle. You can be below him. You can cast from above him. You can cast from the side of him. But there is one ingredient that has to stay the same. Your dry fly must reach the nose of the fish before the fish sees any attachments behind the fly. If you can do those three things right with the right fly, you're going to cook a whole bunch of fish on a dry fly is what you're going to do. Okay. Um, a couple other questions here from the audience. Pete in Sonoma, California. You want to know about patterns, colors, and strategies when pseudos are going off. Do you have any recommendations there? Or 
Well, you know, first of all, I think we should probably define what a pseudo is. A pseudo is a tiny mayfly. It looks almost identical to a PMD, but he's just a teeny tiny little old guy. He'll range in size. He'll be as small as a 24, and most of the standard pseudos will be in there at about a size 22. He's little more than just this dinky, tiny little mayfly. I have some strategies for those guys because I'm always running in, into them. In September, they are a very common hatch in the waters it is that I fish. And the problem with the darn pseudo is this. They hatch in such great numbers at times, it is impossible to get your one single small dry fly in front of that fish when there are literally thousands and thousands of bugs on the water at the same time. My favorite flies in a pseudo hatch is a little size 22 no hackle that we tie at the company. And then I like a little spent spinner in a size 22 as well. If I can't get a fish to eat in that pseudo hatch, what oftentimes I'll do is I'll try to break the hatch. I'll serve in something like a black ant, um, something completely off of what that hatch is, or maybe go back to that little emperor caddis I was talking about before. Because there are hatches on the surface of the water that can be so prolific that they cannot, the fish cannot find your fly. Yeah, yeah. Niche hatches and stuff too, uh, you know. That's yeah. exactly right. Blue wing olives, uh, the well, same. Exactly all of them. I mean, I, gosh, I remember this black caddis hatch on the bighorn that, I mean, my, my arms were just black with, with bugs, you know. Uh, I, I've yeah. never seen so many. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, you, you run into it in all the bugs, really. Um, so, you know, and yeah. the, other comment I, the other comment, Roger, I'd like to make, too, you know, I, I mentioned the accuracy within casting, and that becomes really paramount when you're in a small bug hatch, when there's a ton of bugs on water, it becomes paramount that your, your cast delivers a fly precisely to the trough in which a fish is eating. And keep in mind, on a small bug hatch, what a fish will do is he'll shrink down the water in front of him that he's willing to eat from. Most small bug hatches, he'll stay in one little area, which we call a trough, and that fish will then eat straight up. His trough will normally not be any wider than about six inches wide. That means that no matter where that big old fish is feeding across that hatch flap, you must put your bug inside of that six-inch front right in front of that fish's nose. Accuracy becomes paramount in a small bug hatch. So practice your casting, I'm hearing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, we got a couple other questions. Maybe we can just kind of whip through these here. Um, All right. Uh, we've got... Um, I'll cut this down uh, really quickly. Corey in New Hampshire primarily fishes in a float tube, uses a lot of intermediate sink and floating lines, but the one thing he loves to dry fly fish is the June hex hatch at night. Um, uh, loves that. Is there any pointers you can improve an already spectacular and most important predictable hatch uh, almost to the minute at sunset in midsummer? Do you have any, uh, any, any comments for him? I do, I do, um, you know, and what I would say to Corey is this, I would say this, um, Corey, always pack your headlamp, uh, because in 
Anytime that you go into darkness, the critical issue is to be able to tie knots and be able to untangle binds, and you cannot do that without your headlamp. The other thing is, too, when you're going into darkness on any particular hatch, always maneuver that float tube to where you're looking into the last glare of light on the surface of the water. I'll often chase these hatches into darkness. I don't really fish at night, but I do chase hatches into very black darkness. And it can be really dark outside, but yet if you face the right direction on bodies of water where the sun went down, there will be a glitter that will stay on the water for a full hour after full black dark. There you go. There you go. Uh, and that's when some of the big fish come out too, right? Um, uh, I would think some of the biggest fish that I have ever hooked in my lifetime were caught in that window of time. Right. Um, we right. actually have a name for it. It's when the beavers come out. And the beaver we're referring to is a great big fish making a lot of weight every time it is he raises his head. Yeah, I see that down on the lake here by my house. Um, boy, right at that, that moment in time, the, the fish come out of the deeper end, big fish, to the shallows. And they're not afraid yeah. anymore, and I can just walk around and fish right. within three to four feet of the bank, working my way around the lake, and, and there's plenty of fish there. So, um, yeah. Oh, and, and this one I, we got to try. Um, uh, CJ in Connecticut says, um, uh, he says, after reading the promo regarding your appearance on Ask About Fly Fishing podcast, I assume you're either committed to dry fly fishing or maybe you should be committed. <laughs> so, so we'll go with that you're committed on dry fly fishing. With all the literature indicating that the vast majority of fish, fish's diet is coming from subsurface, do you feel you might have lower fish catch ratio for your time? the water uh, and maybe be missing out on the larger fish? <laughs> you know, this is a great question, and I can detect the, uh, how would I say, the skepticism within with yeah. CJ's uh, right up there. <laughs> yeah. Let me say this, CJ. Uh, I'm not much of a believer in that statistic that you keep hearing about that 90% of the what a fish eats is a subsurface eat. The thing that they don't ever mention in those percentages is many of the bugs inside of that fish's belly are emergers. And a nymph coming from the bottom, when he emerges, he looks the same at the bottom that he does at the surface. How many of those emergers were sucked off the surface by a fish and was calculated that he might have eaten that somewhere closer to the bottom? The one thing we do know that all emerging, emerging bugs are going to end up at the surface of the water, and they're going to consolidate there, and many big fish will come there to eat them because they do concentrate right there. And in, to answer the question uh, pertaining to catch rate and, you know, whether uh, – and big fish – I would say this to CJ, um, you know, the last time that I was skunked on a dry fly was about four years ago on the Harriman Ranch in about a 35-mile-an-hour windstorm. That was the last time I remember being, uh, you know, being, being skunked in a day of dry fly fishing. And the thing about it is, every day it is that we fish, we write a blog on exactly what that day was. So, there's no room in our world uh, for fish stories because we photo those fish that we're catching. So there are no fish stories that we would tell you. And the final comment is about big fish. 
and I would just say this, I get this question all the time, is there's always the sacrifice that people think that you have to make when you fish a dry fly. Um, my answer to that is, is I sacrifice nothing, um, you know, and, and if you dry fly fish, it makes you a pretty humble person. But I will tell you, in the year of 2017, um, you know, I caught in the tune of over 220-plus-inch fish on a dry fly, and many of those fish were pushing up toward the two-foot range, weighing, um, you know, five to eight pounds. The photo of winter on a dry fly, our book, is a photo of a 26-inch rainbow that weighed nine pounds that was caught on a size 20 blueing olive. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm sacrificing something to lots of fish and big fish, but it doesn't feel like I am. Yeah, that sounds like you're doing just fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I don't know how that compares with nymph fishing or streamer fishing, but, you know, it, it seems as though, um, you know, using the proper techniques, you know, always, you know, respecting uh, the intelligence of a fish, and using great dry flies, I think that that has um, that can create results that would be shocking to an audience that doesn't fish a dry fly exclusively. Yeah, yeah. And one last question, Brian Adams just wants to know: Do you do programs for fishing clubs? You know, Brian, I do do presentations for fishing clubs. In fact, we do uh, quite a few of those. And uh, if we had a chance to talk, I'd be more than happy to come and do a presentation for your club as well. There you go, Brian. Just give him a call. Uh, go to uh, go to his website and uh, connect with him there. Well, we've run way over time, um, but uh, oh. it was worth it. Uh, it was worth it, Nate. So um, uh, let's try to wrap this up, and um, uh, we will be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And, of course, we'll be giving away that $25 gift certificate you so generously offered for Dry Fly Innovations. So uh, stick with us just a couple more minutes, folks, and we'll give those prizes away and call it a night. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. The pebble mine still remains a threat to the region and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry has united in this epic conservation battle. Uh, anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org to learn more and to get involved. Again, it's SaveBristolBay.org. And just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, What did you think of this show? Just click on the link and leave your comments. So we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away a few prizes here. The winners for the drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show. You don't want to miss out on your chance to, to get some of these great prizes we have to offer. And if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about uh, Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org, a great uh, organization to support. Uh, they do a lot of work in, in conservation all over the world. So look them up and be part of it. Our winner for that tonight is Lloyd Berkey uh, in Pennsylvania. Lloyd, 
congratulations on get, getting that membership. So um, uh, I know you'll enjoy it. Uh, now we'll give away that one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Time Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com, uh, where you'll find periodicals and books uh, on all aspects of fly fishing. And our winner for this is Rick Bobrick, Rick Bobrick in New York. And um, uh, so congrats on that, Rick. I know you sent in a few questions tonight. I appreciate that. And uh, enjoy your, your subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Uh, and lastly, um, we'll give away a $25 gift certificate to Dry Fly Innovations. And that can be redeemed on dryflyinnovations.com. We'll send you out a certificate, and you can go shopping on Nate's uh, great website. So um, comply towards flies, books, whatever you want from the site. So, uh, And so our question tonight will be uh, a two-part question. Um, uh, Nate talked about two kinds of floating. What are those two kinds of floating? On a brand and a type, uh, what are those two kinds of floats? So, Nate, I'm just waiting for them to type that in, and uh, I'm checking online to see who the first person is that gets it correct, and then you can help me verify that I got the right answer here. So, still <laughs> checking. They're typing. I'm checking. They're typing some more. Well, it, <laughs> well, at least I didn't answer the question for you, so it's all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, come on, guys. Gals. Boy, nothing's coming in here. I'm wondering if our system's working okay. Maybe we asked too hard of a question. <laughs> oh, they, they, they usually give. We've got some pretty good uh, note-takers out there. Let me just check to make sure the uh, form's on our homepage still, just to make sure. And that's why. Um, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. Uh, the form disappeared on our homepage, so you can't send in the, the, the answer. So send your answer to info at askaboutflyfishing.com. Include your name, location, info at askaboutflyfishing.com. First email I get in the email box that's correct, then we'll give that to that person. So we'll check that later on. Hey, Nate, uh, thanks for being on the show. Um, it was a blast. Um, I learned a whole lot, and uh, you're just a wealth, uh, just a knowledge bank, and uh, – Really enjoyed it. Thanks for being here. Well, well, thank you so much. And I thank the audience as well. And just a gentle reminder, ladies, um, have a really happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> you're, boy, you're winning a lot of points with the ladies tonight, Nate, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, had to fork, I had to celebrate Valentine's Day on Sunday so I could do this show tonight. So, uh, But yeah. uh, that worked out just fine. So, But anyway. Well, thanks again for being on the show. hope we can do it again sometime. You bet. It would be my pleasure. Great. Our next broadcast will be on March 7th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And that show I'll interview Gunnar Peterson. And our topic for the show will be Fly Fishing Iceland. 
Uh, Gunnar's company has over 30 years of experience hosting and guiding fly fishers in Iceland. Trout, salmon, and Arctic char can be caught there in some of the most scenic places in the world. Fly fishing in Iceland is different than most countries, so listen in and find out all you need to know about fly fishing this unique fishery. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Whip Ray Key Fishing Lodge, Watermaster, Baja Fly Fishing Company for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements uh, so you don't miss out on any of our Hey, thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing in the Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.